Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Ears of the Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan, and I uh, hope you're doing okay. Um, it's the end of the year. Uh, you should be listening to this right in the middle of December and or later in 2022, but um, we're at the end of perhaps uh, one of the most impactful years to the Asian American community um, with a lot of lows, with a lot of pain and uh, things that we've had to experience, see, and, and deal with. Um, but also some highs in terms of representation on screens, um, people uh, being elected and uh, just doing great things. And so it has been a challenging year and through it all, um, we're still not out of COVID completely. So I wish every single person listening uh, health, safety uh, and peace. Um, it's been a very interesting year for me personally. Um filled with highs and lows and the end of the year is obviously a great time to reflect. So um, above all, I am grateful that you are listening and whether this is your first time joining us or you've listened to all the episodes or somewhere in between, thank you for allowing me to share a little bit of our Asian American stories with you. Uh, today's guest is a dear friend of mine, um, a fellow Michigan Ross MBA, uh, fellow podcaster, uh, Siraj Kandukuri is the host and founder of Brown People We Know, where he highlights stories of South Asians. Um, really great person overall, um, just a great member of the community, and he's done a lot uh, to uplift some of the stories, as we do here, that may not have been heard. And so um, shout out to Siraj, uh, who's got a day job now um, after graduating uh, with his MBA earlier this year. and really excited to share. And so uh, again, thank you for tuning in uh, and stick around to the end, uh, we can, you know, so you can hear Siraj's uh, complete story. So thank you so much for joining. And without further ado, here is my interview with Siraj Kandukuri. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Hope you are doing well and staying healthy. I'm really excited to share this conversation today uh, with a fellow podcaster, the fellow graduate of my MBA program at Michigan. Um, and somebody who is more than anything aligned on our mission of amplifying voices of people that look and sound a lot like us. But for so long, regardless of where we grew up here in the States and what experiences we've had, um, my guests today and I both feel compelled to use our resources and our privilege to bring on voices and to amplify those voices we maybe wish we had at a younger stage in our life. And even we need it today, even though we may feel like much of our lives have passed already. Most of you listening have so many more years ahead. And I wonder, and I am optimistic that even hearing these stories uh, will help spark something in you or to give you a new purpose in life as well. So uh, my guest today is Siraj Kandakuri. He is the host of Brown People We Know. He also will soon, I guess, have a day job. Um, but really excited to share this conversation uh, with somebody, a fellow storyteller. So Siraj, welcome to the Asian Americans. Thanks, Jerry. Super excited to be on. And I know I've told you this before, but I've learned a lot from watching you and watching this show. And so uh, this is a special show for me to be on. Oh, thanks, man. Our, our paths crossed actually when formerly, I guess, through the Asian American Business Association at Ross through a storytelling event that we worked on together earlier this year to so shout out to Peter, to Anna, to uh, Kat. Kat, and to everybody else who who uh, made that happen. So yeah, let, let's get to know you a little bit. You know, we're going to talk about brown people we know and, and why you started it and some of the voices or some of the people that you feature that stand out to you. Uh, but let's learn about Siraj in the earlier years. How, you know, how do you identify from an Asian American perspective? And, and tell us a little bit about your family's origin story into America. Yeah, it's so funny because I think even how I identify as an Asian American has really changed over time. But to begin with, my family is of Indian descent, South Indian from Andhra Pradesh. So we're Telugu speaking. But my dad happened to be working in Saudi Arabia when I was born. So I was born there, don't remember it all, moved pretty early, I think to India. And then I've bounced around a lot as a kid. So I mostly grew up in uh, Canada and the US. So Toronto, Dallas, spent some time in Detroit. Uh, but high school and college, I did in Wisconsin, where I was like one of four Indian people in a school of 2000. So you can imagine I wasn't terribly in line with my 
Indian heritage at that time. I'd say like I've always been speaking Telugu, eating uh, Indian food, South Indian food at home, but it wasn't something that I really displayed publicly. So if you had asked me at that time, I might have said I was Indian American, but looking back, I definitely felt more in touch with the immigrant identity than I may have with the Indian American identity. And in fact, a lot of my friends at that time were Chinese because that was kind of the closer, closest cultural, not equivalent, but the thing that I could relate to most in terms of values, right? During our aforementioned MBA program, Go Blue, I uh, met a few Telugu students there and they were international students from India itself. Uh, and during that time, I think my identity as an Asian person has really changed. I now identify as a Telugu American because I think the parts of India that I have always been in touch with have been related to that Telugu culture. So like movies and food, et cetera. But like all of your guests, like everyone uh, in the States and everyone around the world, I have many different sides to my identity, right? So the Telugu uh, American is one aspect of it. I'm a climber, uh, specifically, I like to boulder. I'm a tea collector. I've recently started learning how to fly planes. So student pilot, uh, soon to be consultant, which may sap all the time out of every all those other hobbies. But I really do try to just live a interesting life and get to learn and uh, get to know as many people as possible, people and cultures and things as possible. Awesome, man. I mean, I really love that story of sort of the evolution of your identity because it's hard, right? Because I think there is sometimes this necessity or this desire to to identify in different ways not in a bad way, but, you know, maybe out of survival or maybe out of a need to feel belong somewhere, right? So, you know, the immigrant thing, most of us resonate with that, right? Uh, but there are obviously things that are very unique to your Telugu culture that even just to broadly call it Indian American or South Asian or Asian American broadly will not touch upon, right? I mean, we can talk at length about politically driven, made up borders and identities that were levied upon us by uh, people, um, back in, back in, uh, still continues today, obviously, to, to give us names to make it easy to separate us versus them. But tell us, you know, tell us a little bit about sort of the, the cultural aspect from your parents' perspective. Like, how much did they want you to be proud of who you are? You know, where you grew up was there, you know, sort of, I don't know. I think sometimes some of us feel that um, our parents are also struggling in their own well intentioned state of wanting us to be successful Americans. And I say that in quotes, but also very proud in our own heritage. So how, how is that for you? Yeah, so 1000%. I think this is like a, a whole, you could do three or four podcast episodes just on this, right? <laughs> but I think my parents always wanted me to be very Indian. So they wanted me to speak Telugu at home. It's interesting because my sister's seven years younger, but because I had a natural attraction to that through Telugu movies, I did end up picking up Telugu. She didn't, but they wanted both of us to pick that up. Uh, my dad still to this day will kind of make comments under his breath if he sees me eating pizza or things that aren't Indian food because <laughs> he wants me eating Indian food. <laughs> uh, my mom will occasionally ask if I've dated any Telugu girls lately, <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? So they want me to retain it. But your question was really interesting to me because it's something that I've really gotten to reflect on over the last few years about their own struggle as immigrants. Specifically, I think with many Asian cultures, things feel pretty hierarchical. So especially as kids, we don't tend to see our parents as people, right? Just like regular people that were making decisions as they went. And when I look at the two of my parents, I think my mom fits in in America. I think like she belongs here. This was a good move for her. For my dad, I don't think so much. Like I honestly, there are times when I feel he may have been happier just staying in India. Like because as they were immigrating, they probably had certain expectations, like our family will increase in wealth, we'll have better access to education. But when I look at my dad and how he wants his kids to eat rice, right, be very Indian, mm -hmm. like one of the unanticipated side effects of that move for him was probably the fact that his kids weren't going to be super Indian, they're going to be a mix. And so overall, I think, I think kind of coming back to your question, they've had typical struggles financially, and now we're in a good position. Culturally, they've had to kind of adjust to the learning curve, to the language, right? But it's just been a really interesting process for me to kind of look at them as an adult now myself and say, wow, like these are the things that worked out for them and these are the things that maybe didn't go as planned. So on that note, we know what you do now, obviously, 
What was your first sort of desire? Let, let's talk about sort of what your, not only what your parents' expectations were, because I think we get a lot of that culturally, but in, in so many of our cultures, there is the academic or professional expectation, particularly from an immigrant's perspective. They say, again, very well-intentioned things like, we brought you to this country, we gave you all this opportunity, and therefore you should do X. What was that for you? And, and how did you manage that? And what did you do before MBA and, and you know, out of undergrad that was a blend of, or was it a blend of what your parents expected for you or how you wanted to define your own career? Yeah, it was totally a blend. And look, I think a lot of times when we talk about this, people like to look at their parents and be like, my parents pressured me to do this or that. And I think it's easy to feel that way in hindsight. But if I like really look back and I think about it, a lot of it wasn't pressure that they were necessarily putting on me. So to give you context, like I always wanted to be a doctor, blah, 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 you know, that whole thing. But at the time, I think as a kid, you're not really exposed to different paths. So you don't know what careers are out there. Your parents are immigrants, so they're just kind of doing their thing, trying to get by. And they don't have the time to go out there, time or connections to go out there, expose you to different careers. So you know all of like five careers, like doctor, engineer, teacher, Right. Uh, whatever. And so I had always of those wanted to be a doctor. And then I hit college. I was a biochem major. I took the MCAT. I had 150 hours of shadowing. And it was only after I graduated because I graduated in three years. So I, I was very head down for those three years with, you know, a major and three minors. And I was just kind of grinding. And then I come out of school and I go, wait, I've never actually paused and like tried other things. So before committing to the med school path, I decided I would go kind of work in business for a bit. And so I started in the healthcare industry, just natural transition from medicine, right? I went to nonprofits and then I wound up at the MBA. But like looking back at that whole journey, it was a mix of things that kind of took me to the medical path. I think there's silent expectations within the community. There's the subtle pressure of me wanting to make my parents happy. I think a lot of immigrant yeah. children really feel that gratitude for what their parents gave them. And that debt, that feeling of debt is certainly there within the community. And so I think I never really questioned what they wanted early on. And so those were the things I think that really pushed me to the med medical path early on. It wasn't just them saying like, hey, you should be a doctor. Um, so it was a mix of what I wanted and what they wanted. Eventually, though, I decided that path wasn't for me. Uh, as I was doing healthcare, as I was doing nonprofits, I realized, wow, I really like this stuff. I never really was a big fan of science. I just kind of grinded through. So I'm going to do this, this, these other things. And when it came to that moment, I think there was a period of tension. And this is what I always tell people now that approach me and say, hey, I want to leave the medical path. Like, I'm really scared to tell my parents, what do I do? I always tell people just accept that period of tension because you're probably not going to know exactly what you're doing. They're not going to know. They want to know what you're doing. You may have just deviated from their expectations for the first time. Like there's just going to be a period <laughs> of rough patch. But once you find your way, so like once I found my way to Michigan Ross, they were able to see where I was going. They were able to picture what a successful future for me might look like, even if you're an artist, right? Like help them see what that might look like in the future. Once you make it, they'll be settled. They want the best for you. It's not that they want you to be X, Y, or Z. It's that like I didn't know about many different career paths when I was younger, they still might not know about those paths because they've never really had the opportunity to explore other things. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. You, you touched upon so many things that are, are very passion topics of mine, which is this really nuanced conversations that we have to have. Like you said, it is easy or fun or, in my opinion, just lazy to blame your parents and been like, they don't know anything about America. Well, no, duh. They, why would they? They were born elsewhere, right? Yeah. Um and whether you are uh, Korean, Telugu, Vietnamese, whatever, like our parents' generation, and if not them, our grandparents' generation, went through some stuff that we would never survive, yeah. right? And so that's the context. Then they pack up their stuff and move here. And so what would you do? You stick to what you know. And what they know is basic, hard science academics to a secured in-home country and respectable licensed job is as crappy as it may be, the sacrificial way to bring your family out of whatever crap situation they were born into. I don't think a lot of our peers understand that. Like they get, and especially, I don't, I don't want to poop on younger kids, but like, you got to understand where your parents are coming from. And like all the things that as big of an advocate for mental health and, you know, finding your own passion, I, I get all that. But that's a huge privilege that we get to even think about 
because we don't have to. You and I don't have to worry about survival. And so to understand that and then to really think about how that plays into the context of how our parents tie their sacrifice to what we do with that sacrifice is really, really tricky. I think from a very American meme perspective, it's like, screw them, right? Like, you know, I do what I want. I was like, but really? That's also disrespectful, you know? So I find your story fascinating, man, because, you know, you like you went hard until like college graduation and you're like, eh, maybe I don't want to go to med school, right? And then, then you never, you, you didn't look back, right? Yeah. Which I think is honorable in a way. Yeah, I will say, so two things. One, touching on what you just said about they were born in a different country. Another thing I'd like to remind people, completely different technology technological landscape. They did not have Google. Half the careers that we have now that are like built around social media, especially the arts careers, those weren't viable back then, right? Like you had gatekeepers in the industry, which would keep media, let's say primarily white or primarily mainstream American, if we're trying to be politically correct. And like social media has enabled essentially like brown creators, Asian creators to rise up because they're finding their audience quickly. But those things weren't things that existed when your parents were coming up. So when they think about what is a viable career, like those options weren't even open to them. But touching on the last point that you made about me not looking back, I will say it was a calculated risk. My thing was your MCAT score lasts, I think it was like three or five years. And so when I left the medical path, what I said was not like, I'm done with medicine, never again. What I said was, I'm going to go try some other things. If I like those things, I'm going to do those things. If I don't, this is still an option for me. And so I think this just gets into a, a bigger conversation around like immigration and shifting risk landscapes, right? Our family was then in a position where I was able to take on more risk and try something else. And so those are things that people need to to think about. I think my attitudes around money and risk and such have really changed over time as our family has started to get more established in America. And as the next generation of immigrants, I have that ability and I should be kind of actively evaluating that risk landscape as opposed to just taking my parents, whatever my parents say at face value and then blaming them later on and that type of thing, right? It's just things change over generations and and we have to see that as a dynamic process, not a static one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, but that's evolution, right? And technology obviously is a huge piece, but America itself has evolved so much in the last 20, 30 years talking about things that we were not allowed to talk about or we were not told. I think there is, you know, uh, as a parent, I think about like, okay, my job is to parent them to be who they want to be, happy and successful for a world I have no idea how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. I think our parents collectively um, didn't fail on that, but I don't think they were properly equipped for whatever reason, uh, access to information, access to diverse voices. They weren't educated here, all these things to basically go to what was a known solution, right? And, and so talk to us about sort of, you know, when, when I started the Years Americans, even though technically I started in March of last year, the idea percolated many, many years before that, right? And aside from the fact that so many of us say, I'm going to do something for years without actually doing it, when was that first light bulb moment or inspiration moment for you? Was it a... I want to hear more or you heard a story and you're like, oh, we need more of that. Yeah, more of the latter. I'd say there's there's kind of the fuel and the spark, right? So uh, when I moved to Wisconsin, this was the fuel because, again, one of four Indian students in a school of 2000. To remind people, we are the second largest population in the world. <laughs> so there was no reason that, that, that I should have been one of four, but I was and it is what it is. But the, Vivek Murthy, who is a former Surgeon General, a fellow uh, South Asian American, he says he said something that was really interesting to me, which is loneliness is not about physical proximity, but it's about do you have people around you that have a shared life experience? And so this experience of navigating two cultures for me, especially being Indian and being American, I didn't have anyone during that time. And I think I will I, I really can't emphasize this enough because I think sometimes people over dramatize this part of their life. But at the time, it didn't make me actively sad, right? I just didn't, I just kind of went about it. I don't know. But it was more looking back in retrospect that I was able to say, like, huh, that was weird that I didn't, like, express this part of myself or that I, you know, I, I recognize the fact that I hung out with Chinese friends a lot, Chinese American friends a lot, and how that may have connected to the fact that I was Indian 
American, like looking back. But I do think there was a sense of loneliness in some regard. There's easy things like one example I always give people is there's a pressure if you're in the Asian American community to take, for example, the advanced math classes in school, right? And if you're not particularly mathematically inclined, but you're in those classes, chances are you're studying all the time. And so people would kind of look at me, American friends might look at me and they might see me as this like nerdy kid, as opposed to this kid that was just trying to meet expectations within the family, right? So this this is all to say that I think there was this long period of fueling what later became brown people we know, uh, and the desire to tell stories, because I felt kind of isolated, I felt kind of lonely, not actively, not in a way that I recognized at the time, but looking back. But to to get to the kind of spark, the moment that created all of this, I was rewatching Hassan Minaj's Homecoming King stand-up special. And this was like the second piece of content in mainstream media that I've seen where you would see a South Asian character and they weren't a recent immigrant. They weren't a stereotype. They weren't Indian. They weren't American, right? They were a blend. This was a true Indian American. This was an Indian person that grew up here uh, and went through balancing two different cultures and creating that unique third culture, right? They lived in that third culture. And so that made me really want to tell more of these stories because I was like, I just so resonated with me watching that that I wanted to, I felt like there was just so many opportunities to tell, to, to bring more of those stories to light. And so when I started the podcast, it really was just to help people feel less isolated, to help people realize that there are other third culture kids out there. Um, but over time, it's also evolved in a way to a break stereotypes around what it means to be South Asian and B mm -hmm. to break internal community pressures to take a certain path again like if you feel the pressure to be a doctor here is a death metal guitarist here is a board member for the american uh, medical association a miss world candidate a comedian like these are all these different people that are like you that chose to take a different path it's okay it's totally viable for you what is your legacy play do you have a legacy play you've been at this for about a year which is a hell of an accomplishment some ridiculous statistic, like a quarter of all podcasts that exist in the world only have one episode uploaded. Yeah. Um, once you get to that, you know, that close to 100 mark, um, you're, you're in, you know, it's really tenacity, right? And just the dedication to do it week after week. Yeah. Most people should know podcasts in and of themselves, challenging to monetize and really the, the energy needs to be sustained for in a non-religion sense, but a higher calling. Why do you do it? What, what's the what's the goal? So I think the reason that I've continued to do it, like you said, hard to monetize. It's a lot of work. I don't think people realize how much work it is in the beginning. And when I started, it was supposed to be nine episodes. But the reason I kept going is just the community. Like I saw that it resonated with people. And then it's not that I felt an obligation to keep going, but I felt that I had an opportunity to make an impact. I felt that it was just a good thing to put out into the world, right? And so when I think about legacy... Where do I want to go? I always think about level one, level two representation. So level one representation is getting South Asian people mainstream within the South Asian population. And level two representation is getting South Asian people mainstream within the mainstream. And it's not related to their South Asian identity. They're just out there, right? Hassan Minaj made Patriot Act. It had nothing to do with being South Asian, but you know, it was a mainstream show. A lot of people watched it. I think brown people we know really operates on level one representation. So, for example, getting Jay Sean's Jay Sean initially made like Punjabi remixes and remixes more catered towards the Indian audience. And then he was picked up by a major label uh, and then went level two representation. So I really want to operate on level one. I just find that that's where the community aspect of it that I really enjoy is at play. So I want to use brown people we know as a platform to launch people within the South Asian community with the intent of them continuing to grow and becoming mainstream eventually. But the larger legacy that I really want to create is just to fund creative work, right? I think fund meaning like put money behind it, put resources behind it, put connections behind it. I love, love, love to connect people I know that are working in similar domains and similar projects. So that's where I see this kind of heading. I don't know exactly what form that'll take. Even within consulting, I'm hoping to go into the media industry because again, funding creative projects, right? 
but that's that's the larger legacy that I'd like to leave behind, both with my South Asian identity and just as a person. That's awesome. I mean, I, I would also say, though, like in in Patriot Act, I, I do think that his identity and his shared experience, because he makes a lot of South Asian jokes, like, you know. Yeah. And so I, I think it is so difficult to be able to be authentic and be received by the members of your community as one of your own. So not a sellout, but also be wildly, broadly marketable as he has figured out where white folks watch him and they just think he's funny purely based on merit, right? And I think that's something that we as marginalized people in this country have to deal with that you are who you are, right? You are going to get treated differently purely based on the way we look. That's a given. And whether you believe in it or not, sorry, it happens, right? But then to be able to be, you know, sure, we want to be in a, in a perfect world uh, known for our work, right? Be respected and recognized for purely our work. But if you look like the way you and I do, that's not enough, right? And, and so, because um, if it was, look at the boards of companies, look at the people who make decisions, it wouldn't look monochromatically in one gender, right? So we don't live in a pure meritocratic society, unfortunately. I think we'd like to one day, but we're just not there yet. And so then finding that balance between, as, as you said, your level two level of visibility and representation is so hard because at some point when you get to that level, then you're also levied with this burden or responsibility to speak for your community, right? Like, you know, stuff happens to Asian Americans and, you know, they're like, all right, let's find the most famous actor we know. And like, hey, what do you think? Like, well, they really have an opinion, opinion that's more valid than anybody else's. And, and that's, I think it's an evolution of ours too. Like as, as a community, as, you know, second, third generation folks in this country, like, you know, and, and it, for me, it's, it's somewhere in between, right? Because I, I think particularly in uh, certain lines of business, there are, I call them meritocracy, meritocracy monsters. Like they genuinely think that their race or gender have nothing to do with where they've gotten. And I think it's sad when they think that way. Yeah, I think America as a country over indexes on everything is your fault or nothing is like, you know, everything is within my power or uh, I'm the victim of everything. And it's healthy to find the balance, right? To me, it's all about recognizing and then brushing off in a way. Yeah. Meaning like on the on the societal level, we need to make massive changes that will affect things. But as an individual, I think you have to recognize, but not let those things hold you back. I, I think it's okay to want to believe in merit and also in the same breath, recognize that merit's not possible. I remember I'll tell a quick story that uh, might resonate a little bit more with the MBA crowd. I'll, I'll tell two quick stories. They're actually at the same firm. I won't mention the firm. But first year we went, you know, all these companies come to recruit, right? So if you went to business school during the pandemic, I'm sorry, you don't know what this feels like, but they'll <laughs> rent out a classroom and they'll bring, you know, they'll fly in people and they'll, you know, do the, the, their spiel, right? Like come work for us because we're so awesome. So I go to this, it, it's a, it's more of a smaller boutique type of a consulting firm presentation. Um, I go with my two friends, one's a white man, one's a white woman, and the three of us are sitting there and we, we listen to them talk. And I actually don't remember what the heck they said, because all I could focus on was that they brought seven white dudes to represent the firm. So I'm just thinking they're like, okay, I don't want to be offensive and walk out of here, but there's no way that I'm walking, that I'm going to work for a firm who either is that monochromatic and, or nobody has any sense to not send seven white dudes to a school that is very diverse in 2015 and 16, where diversity was a very, very top of mind conversation in the business world. And so they're done with the presentation. And then I, you know, when, when we're dispersing, I, I turn to my two friends and go, can you believe who they brought to this conversation? And the white guy says, what? <laughs> In typical, you know, like, I don't blame him, but it's just, you don't see what you don't see. Yeah. yeah. And then the other woman, she goes, yeah, they about seven guys. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, this is, it, it, this encapsulates for me, like, how we see the world. Like you only saw gender as a problem. But if you look at the room and if you know the population of our business school and also know that that consulting firm's founders were actually Indian American, like where's the thing? So anyway, so that happened. I eventually go through their process. I, I get an offer and 
I, I go to Chicago for their celebration weekend. Even though I had my reservations, I thought I'll go check it out and, and see, you know, I want to be proven wrong. And so we go to, we, we go to the whole, you know, they do the thing at the office and we go to dinner and we, we go to uh, one of the big, I don't know, lounge popular bars in, in Chicago. And so I have a moment with the, the manager or sort of, he was a few years outside of Ross, basically the guy that was responsible for paying the bar tab for us, right? The, <laughs> the younger guy, as, right? So anyway, Indian American guy, right? So there's a moment at the bar where everybody's just hanging out. And I was like, hey, I just wanted to ask you as a fellow Asian American, right? Because I had a big, I have a big issue with perceived diversity at this firm. And as somebody who cares about seeing people who look like me advance in this company, like how has it been for you as an Indian American advancing at this firm? And his face turned like, like we were drinking, right? But yeah. his face turned like deadpan. And he goes, race has nothing to do with where I've gotten in life. We do not care what you look like here at this company. And I was like, okay. And I, I literally walked away. And I, like, I, it was just so, I, I felt, and in retrospect, like, I feel bad for that guy because school, society, peer pressure, whatever, has really gotten him to think that it has no bearing on it. And I'm not saying you only got there because you're an Indian American, but there has to be an understanding that the way that we progress in school and work and life is a little different because of who we are and that's okay and, and so you know I, I i think like those two experiences you know really shape how i view like how people operate in life and i, I wonder how that's been for you because you're, you're going to a, a global name in, in in a consulting practice i don't know too much about the diversity metrics of that particular firm but you know your, your passion project is around people we know you have this sort of newfound pride in your Dago culture and sort of wanting to express that how are you, as you're mentally getting prepared to re-enter post-MBA workforce life, how does that play into how you view the world or how you view identity? So if, I, I want to start by just touching on that story that you just said about walking up to that person, because I think it raises a larger point that I've been thinking about a lot, which is so many times we tie our ego to our accomplishments, and that prevents us from being honest about certain things, or it makes us embarrassed about the advantages that we've had. And one of the things that I've been trying to do is to just be more honest and be more transparent. So I will tell people that my parents helped me pay for grad school. This is like a multi-generational progression that we're trying to make. We're trying to build a legacy, not just for myself, but as a family, right? Like I will then pass on that wealth to my children. Hopefully they give much of it away and, you know, donate and do that whole thing. But we are building our family so that we have advantages across generations. And so I think people are ashamed to, uh, to admit, you know, like my parents helped me pay for grad school and stuff. And then, uh, or whatever their advantage, like, you, know, you know, if it's the white person in the room to be like, I went to this firm with a bunch of white people and they, they were able to resonate with me deeper because they had the same church upbringing or whatever. Like people want to hide all of that. And I don't understand. I do understand why, but I think we should stop. In terms of the company itself, looking at the company, I also love that you brought up this panel because I will say I was eagle eyed when I was at the firm during my internship, just <laughs> looking, right? Just observing like who are the directors, who are the partners, who are at different levels, just seeing like, am I going to move my, be able to move my way up? Because I don't care what they say in terms of diversity. I care what I see. And this is, I think, exactly the work that you're doing going in and speaking at corporations and stuff. You know, you're, in, you're telling them to put their money where their mouth is. So uh, if I find out about your diversity program and it's like, you know, you, you've got a thousand dollar budget for your <laughs> to feed everyone in the <laughs> office, uh, which I've heard that story recently. Or if I look across your directors and they're all one shade or one gender, it's just I'm not going to take your word on the uh, on the diversity thing. And I'm much less likely to engage with that process. The company that I'm going to, I will say things weren't perfect, but what I saw was encouraging. And so I'm willing to go there basically to, to give it that chance. But that has been my experience, I'd say, in terms of looking for will my identity fit here? I'm just looking for more than diversity for inclusion across the top, for understanding, do I feel the need to hide parts of my identity? That's the third culture thing, right? Is like we're constantly, instead of expressing ourselves as a third culture kid, we're switching between the Indian and the 
American. And I'm now looking for a place where I can go up to the white partner and say, I have this podcast. It's about South Asian Americans. And I'm not like embarrassed to say that, or I don't feel the need to hide it because the topic might make him uncomfortable or something like that. Uh, and in this company, I found out, you know, there was a director's meeting. They were all talking about my podcast. And I thought that was pretty cool. They seemed pretty willing to accept all of the different aspects of my identity and the work. That That's I'm awesome, doing. man. I mean, you're right. You know, um, everybody's got a nice statement. They made our version of thoughts and prayers yeah. tweets after all <laughs> this, you know, which is we condemn the violence and we stand in solidarity. What are you doing? Like, sure. I, I laugh, chuckle at condemn statements. It's like, what does that mean in practicality? Like, I condemn racism. Okay, that's easy. That's that's a given. Like, what, what are you actually doing, right? And, and and you're right, you know, not every company backs it up. There are countless companies, some I ended up working with, some not, who I know how much money they make and how much they're worth because a lot of it is public information. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we either don't have a speaker budget or it's like $2,000. And you're like, yeah, you know, you really need to rethink how you view diversity initiatives because it's not just an ERG play. It's not just we're here to serve the small population. Like your company being more aware of our experiences will actually make you more money. I can teach you how to do that. And so pay whatever people want to get paid for their work. I obviously say that because I'm on the receiving end of it, but I hope that changes. And I really am excited. And I know it's a it's a long time, maybe perhaps Hopefully it happens sooner than later, but those of us who can get to the positions of influence sooner and to direct these budgets and or decisions and or create enough of a block, you know, voting block. And this is where solidarity and intersectionality with other groups is so important because it's not just about like, hey, we need to fund stuff in May. We want to have this stuff all year around. And we all, if we if we all speak together, then. And you're starting to see that a little bit. But yeah, uh, let's talk more specifically. I, I want to have you reflect. I don't know exactly when the, I think you just passed your first year, Mark, right? Yeah, just about uh, two weeks ago. Tell me two things that are most memorable to you and the things that were well, the one thing that you're most proud of. I'll start with the thing that I'm most proud of. So again, when I started this podcast, I thought it would be nine episodes. And there are a lot of challenges to having a specific themed podcast. For example, I don't want to ask people every episode, are you, do you feel more South Asian or do you feel more American? Right? Like those conversations <laughs> just get repetitive. So figuring out like what this show is took some time, but I think it's a creative thing that I'm not being paid for right now. And um, it's just been a, a tough thing, a tough process, a learning process, but like a tough thing just to maintain the endurance. So the thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that I'm still going, the fact that it's lasted a year, that it's actually growing. We've just added new segments where I'm uh, bringing in academics, where I'm actually featuring other podcasts because uh, that's in line with our mission, right, of increasing representation. So I'm most proud of the fact that at some point in my head, this stopped being a 20-episode podcast, and I started thinking of it as a 100-episode podcast. And that has just changed the way that I've operated it has made me think about how to maintain endurance, but also how to uh, make this show more interesting, how to keep listeners over the course of 100 episodes. It has made me freak out less when I've had bad audio <laughs> or just like uh, a more dull conversation. So that that's what I'd say overall I'm just most proud of is from a more creative perspective is just continuing the process of going. Cool, man. Let's, let's brag on you because in, in, the, in the past year, You've uh, been recognized by some some reputable names. You and I have been on some lists collectively, which is super cool and uh, humbling. But what what are you you know from from that perspective, you know what are you most proud of? Yeah, so I mean, we made Forbes. We made uh, we got the Lion's Share Award for Podcast of the Year. Tied it with Vietnamese boat people on the tie break round. So that was a tense moment, but a good one to celebrate. I'd say the one. It sounds funny, but the one that. I'm most proud of is uh, we were featured in Raleigh magazine. And the reason, you know, Forbes was amazing because all the people in that Forbes article, I knew all of them. I knew all those creators and it was just like a really good, like friendship moment <laughs> as cheesy as that sounds to, to be featured together. But the one with Raleigh magazine was just crazy for me because 
it was in print, which I think when you anything in print just seems to hold more value, right? It was something that my parents, they could open a magazine and look at and be like, okay, maybe he's not totally insane for putting hours of time into this instead of like studying or whatever they want me to be doing. Uh, my grandparents happen to be here right now because of COVID. Uh, and so when they saw the magazine, it's like a thing that they can hold. And I'm still bewildered that someone spent enough money to to get this thing printed in colored ink, which is, I think that's like 20 cents a page, but someone saw value in it. And uh, so I, I really do appreciate that. That's really, really cool, man. Especially when the parent piece is there. I, I joke often that my parents have no idea what I do for a living or how I make my money. They're just happy <laughs> that I seem happy and their grandkids are fed and are happy. But it is, you know, we don't, we don't do it for, I don't think anybody, well, most people, um, if you're doing it for the right reasons, you're not doing it for the mentions or, or the press release or the press mentions. But, you know, it is not the goal, but it is a reflection and an indication and a validation of the work that you've put in. And and I do think that we are not even at any sort of tipping point of Asian American storytelling. I, you know, podcast medium is a lot of fun. We still, by and large, exist from a storytelling perspective in a permission-driven environment where a studio needs to green, green light something, you know, um, if you want your books physically in print at bookstores, you need the permission of a publishing house still, you know, yes, there are self-publishing ways. Yes, there is YouTube, but you know, are you going to get again, sort of the validation that somebody somewhere a traditional access thought that your story was worthy of telling and so that's where I think podcasting is sort of a really interesting and fascinating piece where really you make your own success in this game because 99% of people will make it a year. That is either through fatigue, money, energy, resources, whatever it is. And so if you're doing it right and if you're iterating, if you're learning and you're evolving, there's no way and you just have to outlast everybody, right? Like, and then so like to anybody else, I've been at this a year and a half. Siraj has been at this for a year. We've been celebrated. And obviously this year for good and not so good reasons, there's been a lot of attention in our community. So we'll take it. We're, we're very grateful, but it's longevity. Like you can't be on episode 10 and then look at Siraj and go, wow, look, look, he's being mentioned in his magazine and blah, blah, blah. Get to 100 like his goal is, like I did earlier this year. And then don't be fully expect the goodness to come. Because how many real authentic Asian American storytelling anythings are there with a hundred episodes. Yeah. A finite amount. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm really proud of what you've built, man. I think it's super, super dope, particularly because I think I am ethnically Korean American, right? Very, very proud to be Korean. This notion of starting something that is more broadly Asian American has been a challenge because I picked a region that represents 4 billion people in the world and you can't be exhaustive in your representation. And because of who I am and who my personal networks are, there tends to be a bias of people who look like me and getting those stories out of South Asian Americans has really been, to be honest, a bit of a challenge because I don't want, I don't know too many people. And in, you know, in the beginning, few months, I only picked people that I personally knew that I knew whose stories would, you know, make it onto the show. Uh, but then to see you, to see South Asian Trailblazers, to see other shows, The Woke Desi and all these other shows, like you said, y'all a billion people and your primary language in India is English. And so your market for these stories aren't just the, you know, what is probably four to five million Indian Americans here. It's a billion people. And that's a nice market to play in. For sure. It has been a learning process in terms of targeting it. And I just, I do, I want to reiterate everything that you just said, because I feel like it's so important. If you try to do this for the accolades, you will wash out. Like, I think <laughs> that's just the nature of podcasting. Um, if you think about YouTube, if you go watch a YouTube video and the side on the right side, you have recommendations for other YouTube videos, right? That doesn't exist in podcasting. So it just takes a like your podcast just doesn't get recommended in the same way that other mediums do. It takes a long time to build, takes a lot of intentionality. So um, view it with endurance, 
really tie yourself into the mission. Again, for me, it, it really became about the community. And I never tried to become the biggest South Asian community. I just wanted to, you know, create brown people who know, create a space. I have my guests who have, have become friends and incredible promoters of the show. And like you said, we'll just just keep promoting stories. And there's a huge market out there. And hopefully um, these things will catch on. Yeah. And, and look, the personal benefits, um, not just monetarily, but the amount of self-growth that happens, the amount of things you learn, how exponentially your own network grows, um, because you're known to be a hub of a community who is tirelessly putting out and putting spotlight on other people is really something that I think is people don't think about that before they start something, but why wouldn't good things come out of amplifying other people's stories? Right. And so this has been a lot of fun, man. What do you have to say as, as you know, we got a couple more things to do, but to actually let's wrap it up into sort of the last question and let you grand, grand finale here. So the way that we finish our shows is through the dearest Americans letter. Um, but I, I'd love for you to get your take on sort of, you know, sharing your lessons and your experiences with somebody who might be where you are, maybe a year, uh, maybe a couple of years before that, when you know that these stories need to be told and you're the only, you're the best person to do it. What, what have you learned and what sort of message do you want to have, you want to share with the Asian American audience? So I'll start and uh, you can help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Figure out who you are and then dive deeply into that. That means that you'll spend a lot of time exploring, whether that's hobbies or different parts of your identity. Just find what resonates with you. You won't know until you actually try it or engage in it. But once you figure that out, just dive deeply into it. Don't worry too much about anything else. I think whatever you are, if you do it well, if you be it well, whether that's a friend or a podcaster or a climber or an MBA student slash consultant, whatever it is, if you embrace it fully, then you would be just fine. Start. I, I think, well, I want to give a little bit more context to a piece of advice I gave earlier in the show. Start, obviously, is, is the most important thing. You'll, you'll get better. Don't quit, right? Mm -hmm. But the middle piece of making sure that your stuff is good making sure that you're learning and that you're improving because there are shows, things in the universe with many, many, many episodes that are not that good. Yeah. And so you want to be something that you're, you know, you want to do something that you're proud of. I think in the work that we do, it's not just another, you know, average white guy telling you how to be successful in life, right? We have a lot of shows like that. And I don't think any of our shows will ever hit that reach. Maybe if it hits the subcontinent, it might go off, but I'm completely okay playing in my smaller Asian American pool because the context with which our stories can change a life is what I'm after. Mm -hmm. You can read all the business books or life advice books in the world, but it's like your show, right? Like, why is the advice critically important that it's from a fellow brown person? Because the context. Exactly. Someone else doesn't understand the, yeah. the parental pressures, the the self-imposed pressure, all of those things. Yeah, yeah we don't, you know, so I, it's it's, you know. Otherwise, I mean, all you got to do is wake up at 4 a.m. and manifest destiny and just work really hard. <laughs> then then we'd all be, you know, billionaires. But that's not the case. Yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited for your next chapter, both professionally as you enter the post-MBA life. Um, hope you get to travel a little bit. And at least <laughs> people who've listened or I guess know me uh, know also I'm not a huge fan of the corporate life. But I hope you get to learn something. Hope you grow. Enjoy those uh, hotel and airline upgrades as they come. But yeah, I, I also hope that you get to meet more awesome brown folks as you travel, as you work in the in the space. And and one of the things that I think is really I've, I've just had to accept and be more just open and proud of is the way that I run this media business and the speaking business is different because of what I used to do just before this. And that's something that I used to be really humble about, like not humble, but, you know, very like deflective about, but you know what, like, there's a reason why your media business will be better than anybody else's. Because the stuff that you learn during the day, you get to deploy at night, and the people that you meet, and the logos on your resume will help open doors into those places. And so super excited for you. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. Brown people we know is where to go brown people we know.com BPWK podcast on Instagram. And we will put all the links to follow uh, in the show notes or wherever you are finding this. And uh, best of luck, man. Uh, second year is is hard, uh, especially if you as you get more uh, 
on your plate. Oh, and I will say, uh, shout out to all the team members that you're building on because this stuff is hard to do solo, man. Yeah. Uh, Ravi Ladd and Malaika Ravindran, thank you so much. I to, to me, it's just, it still blows my mind that people think this is worth contributing to, you know, like uh, to me, this is still a podcast that started in my closet and I've seen the, the, the growth of it, but they're uh, like the fact that people want to come on my show <laughs> still blows my mind. But uh, I think it's a testament, not just to the quality of the show, but also to the fact that people see this as something useful and people want to be a part of it. This movement of, building into your growing into your south asian identity south asian american identity same man that that never never forget that feeling right because I, I i get it all the time it's humbling but at the same time got to own it because you you built this from from zero like you said in your closet and so uh thanks for making time for us today super super excited to continue our friendship and our uh support of each other as, as they come again brown people we know check it out and Siraj, we will see you next time Thanks, Jerry. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Siraj for sharing. Um, we were supposed to air this episode a few months ago, and um, a lot of things have been going on uh, for me professionally and personally, so um, it is a little delayed. However, we still hope that you've gotten um, as much value out of it as we hoped you would. Uh, go to brownpeoplewenow.com. Uh, follow him on Instagram at brownpeoplewenow. Um, and... I think if you uh, have people you want to nominate for his podcast, if you want to connect with him, um, he's really been a great friend through this process of being a podcaster and a content creator and uh, somebody who's along the same journey of wanting to get more of our stories out there. If you want to follow us in the on the internet, we are at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram. DearAsianAmericans.com is where you can go uh, to learn more about us and the work that I do. You can also go to jerrywan.com and uh, would love to connect. Um, on a personal note, if you've made it this far, uh, today we are also launching a brand new show uh, for my undergraduate school at USC Marshall on a show called Marshall Voices that I get to host and to produce. So uh, check us out wherever you can. Above all, please continue to stay healthy and safe as we navigate uh, COVID still with the Omicron variant. Um, as you celebrate with family and friends, as you take some time off perhaps from school, from work, to reflect on what this year has meant for you and for us to plan together for a brighter um, and healthier 2022, I wish you all the best. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, uh, I wish you the best. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you very much for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans. <laughs>